This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now. Welcome to Lama Surya Das's Awakening Now podcast. We are very pleased to share with you Lama's unique illumination of the awakened awareness teachings. If you are interested in supporting Lama Surya Das's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/suryadas. So we're practicing the sky gazing. We began with some breathing exercises and ended with chanting, as I've discussed before, bracketing the main part of the session, the silent meditation, the naked awareness, the sky gazing, the awareness of awareness, naked meditation, naked awareness, presencing meditation, called in Dzogchen non-meditation or unmeditation, undoing the habit of overdoing, getting used to being, not always relying on doing, strategizing, thinking, achieving, and becoming, but plumbing the depths of being, of as it is, of the naturalness as the way, as is said in the scriptures, Dzogchen scriptures, Zen scriptures, and others. That's actually a quote from the Zen scriptures. Naturalness is the way, and the way is the, it's the great way with a capital W. So that says a hell of a lot. But how to practice and rehearse naturalness. That's the koan. That's the challenge. But who can argue with naturalness as being innate? Which is why we talk about Buddha nature and all these things as innate. This is not a belief. Who can argue about health coming from outside, from medicine? No, health doesn't come from medicine. Health comes from inside. Medicine helps restore health, right? It cures disease, which is extra, right? Health is innate. And spiritual health is innate, too, and this Dzogchen tradition introduces that, points that out, and works on us realizing that, helps us to work on realizing that. It's a little different than teachings that propound that we're evil, sinful, ruined from the beginning. Of course, it's very rare to find such a teaching, but we think that the story of Christianity in the garden is like that. Actually, we could have quite a different interpretation with the eye of Dzogchen. Like 
Eve bit the apple of knowledge, of dualism. But before that, the primordial state was there, which is still there underneath it all. You with me? So it's really not original sin. But that's not my subject. I'm just enjoying the depths and, and vastness of Dzogchen, how it can be applied to understanding anything, really. This is not a teaching about how we're so obscured and deluded and defiled and we have to purify and, and stay in the washer dryer for many, many lifetimes of going around and around and tumbling and doing all the tumblings and bowings and mudras and yantras and tantras and yantras and mantras and mudras and samayas and dharanis and all the other things I can't remember that don't rhyme. It sounds like a hell of a lot of work, doesn't it? like a washer and dryer that has too many speeds and other things to do. And then sometimes it gets broken because you're fiddling with it too much. And then what? Well, Dzogchen has a different approach. As I mentioned in the first night Dharma talk, I always reveal it all on the first night, but it doesn't mean one always hears it. In Dzogchen, it's like playing basketball with a court that's bigger than the hoop. No, with a hoop that's bigger than the court. You can't miss this naturalness. And yet it's subtle. What did somebody say yesterday? It's simple, but not necessarily easy. Why isn't it easy? Because we're so conditioned. That's what karma means, conditioning. We're so stuck. The ruts of our habits are so deep. So with spiritual practice in general, in the gradual path, climbing the path from below up, as we discussed yesterday on the left side of the board, in the gradual path, progressive path, reconditioning, making new habits, good habits instead of bad habits, cleaning up our act, cultivating virtues rather than vices, and so forth, reconditioning and eventually deconditioning. As the new habits are less deeply ingrained, we're less stuck in ruts, eventually being free. We get out of the Grand Canyon of our usual confusion and delusion, stuckness and despair, hopelessness, and make positive habits. But even those are still habits. Freedom is yet to be attained. So whether we rise or fall in the wheel of existence, that is still not freedom and liberation, total deconditioning, or the unconditioned, as Buddhist theology calls it. One with karma, no self, one with karma. So, in this teaching, everything is pure and perfect from the first, meaning the Garden of Eden right now, underneath it all. Eve may have bitten the apple, but we don't have to relive that every moment. We're free not to bite. When the apple is offered, when the apple is offered, we're free now in the moment to bite or not to bite. Is that a choice? Do we have to bite? To bite. I feel a Shakespearean coming on. To bite or not to bite. Is that the question? Yes. That's the question. Who cares about Eve? Fuck Eve. <laughs> and all the this multiplications from Eve. To bite or not to bite. Oh, fish. Mmm. Nice, smelly worm. Maybe have a nibble, but don't bite and swallow it hook, line, and sinker and get hooked and pull out of your element, pulled off your Buddha seat. I hope you're, it's clear what I just said, because I can't necessarily say it again so precisely. 
The bait comes in through the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. We feel things. We react. We want. We don't want, which is really the same desire and aversion, just pushing and pulling like an automatic duo, whether it opens in or out. It's going to be the same. Exhausting ourselves, pushing and pulling. So to bite or not to bite, that's a choice, and we can make. Sometimes we do bite, and we should bite. If the children run into the street, we should scream, shout, and leap. That's biting the, the apple of knowledge, knowing there's something wrong, and it's up to you to do something about it. This is not advocating passivity or being lobotomized but not biting every time and not getting hooked and pulled out of your element. Not swinging every pitch, as they say in baseball. Aware of arisings and choosing how, when, and if to respond. Being proactive rather than purely reactive. Being choiceful rather than having no choice, just blind reaction. So this is the inner freedom we're talking about. That's why it's said that it's not what happens to us or out of circumstances, but how we react to it that makes all the difference. One of the most famous pithy instructions of the Mahamudra lineage comes from the great master Talopa. He said to Naropa, this, this has come down to us 1,100 years through the practicing lineage of Milarepa. It's not outer things that entangle us in the rope, but it's inner attachment and fixation which, is, which entangles us. So that's the direction to look for freedom, for relief from our entanglements and, and afflictions. Not out, but at our own attachments and fixations, attraction, attachment, and aversion, and so forth. It's a very profound teaching. It takes two to tangle like Velcro, the hooks and the loops. If we don't provide the loop, the hook gets nothing. We don't get stuck. Or maybe we're the hook since we're kind of getting hooked. I don't know. Anyway, it takes the both to, to, to Velcro eyes. So in this practice, cultivating this pure presence, non-reactive, open, aware, these are kind of the qualities of Dzogchen meditation. Openness, awareness, not just empty-minded, not just blank, not asleep, not in a coma, not comatose, not blotto, not oblivious. Openness and aware. As my Dzogchen master, Tugorjan Rinpoche, whose sons come here and teach sometimes, Selkni Rinpoche, Chikinima Rinpoche, etc., Minjur Rinpoche, middle-aged lamas from Nepal. As the master of masters, Tukurja Rinpoche used to say, it's like a sunlit space, a sunlit room, not just an empty room. A sunlit room, luminous, yet spacious. It can accommodate, there's room, roomy, yet lucid, luminous. So openness, awareness, Relaxation, spontaneity, flow, clarity, letting go, letting be, and so forth. 
in one way it all sounds the same, but it's actually different facets of the same jewel of practice. And notice what's not here. It doesn't say concentration. It doesn't say radiating light rays. It doesn't say anything about divine sound or mantra chanting or visualizing Buddhas or mandalas or praying for world peace or radiating loving kindness and compassion. We might do it at the end of the session. We might even spend weeks or months in retreat doing those practices. Right here, we're concentrating on just Dzogchen meditation practice. And these are some of the characteristics or principles or qualities of it. Perspicacity means insightfulness. So not just sitting there being here now, but also having some insight into cause and effect, into what's what. Not just the nature of things, but also how they function and interdepend and interconnect. If you're a student of Buddhism, the first step on the Eightfold Path is right view or wise view, seeing things as they are, not as they ain't. That's wisdom in Buddhism, seeing things as they are, not as they ain't. And that implies seeing it as it is and also understanding something about it. Causation or emptiness, transparency, impermanence, and so on not just reflecting like a mirror that has no insight. So when we're practicing, we're not just sitting there doing nothing. We're actually in a dynamic state, a dynamic presence of mind. If you are Christian-minded, if you read the Western mystics like Simone Weil of France, she might call it prayer. She gives prayer this definition. She lived around World War II. She's a well-known mystic who wrote, I forget what, with God in the title. A few books about God. She says, prayer is undivided, undiluted attention. Like pure, unadulterated attention. So that's our practice. For a Christian like her, that's a kind of a mystical prayer. Not an asking for something prayer, but that's like a mystical prayer. Like Christian centering prayer is taught by the contemporary saint, Father Thomas Keating, who teaches here once a year. Christian centering prayer, being in the presence of God, not asking God for something like he's Santa Claus. Christian centering prayer, they call it. So we're not just sitting here doing nothing. It's a very dynamic, lively, lucid, centerless openness, luminous, lucid, attentive, and so forth. Insightful, equanimous, equal to whatever appears, not ignoring it, not indifferent or complacent, very interested, actually, almost curious, like paying attention, like, ah, that's what Imaho means, kind of wondrous. It's like a child, ah, I never saw that before. Wow, ah, Imaho. Every moment is fresh. We're the ones that act like, like jaded old fools. Oh, been there, done that, seen that. Isn't there anything else? What's next? Oh, now we've learned about Dzogchen. What's next? And so forth. Worshiping the new. Well, let's turn that over. Everything is new. Worship everything equally. And the new gets old as soon as it's there. So everything is it, really. So in this freshness, this effervescent awareness, riding the wave of nowness, this bubbling effervescent nowness, not trying to build up time, not think about quality, quantity, more about the quality of presence of awareness, the wisdom factor, 
not just effort and duration and quantity. So in this meditation session, first we began with the breathing exercises from the six yogas, Tibetan tradition of the six Vajrayana yogas, six energy yogas. We're practicing a little of that every morning, led by Judy Ricci. And then we had the main session, and in the main session of the sky, we, we chanted, ah, to open and relax and release, rather than some longer mantras. And after the eyeing, then just sky gazing, ah. Seeing through, being through, undoing the habit of overdoing, cultivating a wakefulness, relying, excuse me, on innate wakefulness, not trying to build up concentration, aware of whatever momentarily arises in the body-mind continuum in the present moment, and letting it go, letting it come and go. A pain in the body, aware of it, and letting it go. If it continues, letting it come again, letting it go, not trying to drive it away. A sound, somebody sneezes, or there's a truck sound or something. Hearing is just hearing, nothing to listen to or think about. No one hearing it, as Buddha said. In seeing, just seeing, nothing to look at or look for, no one seeing it. Just the process, seeing just naked experience, unmediated by thoughts and concepts, including me and mine, not to mention I like it and I dislike it. You see, it's already become more than secondary, tertiary, and more, further away from the direct, unmediated experience. In hearing, just hearing, and that's enough, and that's it. And that's the appropriate functioning of the senses and the sense consciousnesses. And then we can choose whether to think about it or not. Here we're choosing not to analyze things. At another time at work, perhaps, you might. Or in between sessions, you might. And we can always choose that option. We went to school, we learned that option. We did not learn this option very much. Some of us may have in some circumstance or other, but not mainly. Like resting in the right side of the brain, rather than always in the linear, strategic hyperactive, rational left side of the brain, the thought center. But the right side, more the intuition, the gestalt, the holistic, the all-at-onceness, the messy emotional part, not just the rational spick-and-span engineering part of the brain. So that we have some balance, not just so we stay in the right side of the brain all the time or in the non-doing being also. Not just staying in that either. But here, just experiencing a little of that to undo the habit of overdoing, to get used to naturalness as a way to learn to relax and yet be dynamically present. Interested, imho, wondrous. The Zen masters in Korea, they teach everything that arises. You say, what's this? What's this? Not to think about it. It's called the huado. It's like a koan. You're just like, what? Like... I don't really translate that as what's this. My translation is, what the fuck? Because <laughs> that's not a watch this. Let's have a discourse on an, a science of it. It's like, wah! <laughs> and then the next thing, wah! <laughs> so 
Shukyanim Rinpoche of Nepal, who teaches here once a year, he said, when somebody says, how do you practice Mahamudra, which is Dzogchen's sister practice. So here, let's just say, how do you practice this meditation? This is his description. I'm sorry, you can't see my hands, but this is his answer. And he's a very learned Kempo, an abbot professor, as well as a meditator and stuff. But this was his answer. And I thought, oh, it's like a bird electrocuted on a wire. <laughs> but that's the moment of Dzogchen. And then you start making stories about it. That's not Dzogchen. That's thinking and storytelling and analyzing and maybe it's science, psychology. You know, there's a time for that. But this is a time of Dzogchen. How close to the moment, direct, immediate experience can we be? Which we already are, but we're so obscured about it, overlooking it. Where else can we be, actually? So this is the path from which one can never fall or deviate once you grok it. And it becomes part of yourself. So that's why I like it. I love it. So Chen is more fun, as I always say. My own Dzogchen mentor, Nyosho Kempo Rinpoche, like to call it Nyur Day Zogpachempa, which is a saying in Tibetan. Nyurwa means quick, fast, direct. Dewa means comfy, cozy, delightful. So who doesn't want fast and direct? And who doesn't want comfy, cozy, delightful? I sort of thought hand go up over there. <laughs> They're surprised. Ah, what the fuck? <laughs> And that's in distinction, that's distinct from the usual teachings of spiritual traditions, especially Indian spiritual traditions about austerities and fasting and other things, or hard practice. It doesn't mean there's not a time for that, but this is another time. This is the time of Zogchen to see if we can experience this kind of enjoyment, enjoying, appreciating. The joy of meditation, appreciating everything as it is, beyond liking and disliking. Enjoying the shit, which, we, which is good. If you can't shit, you're in trouble. And enjoying the good stuff, the flowers and, and the, you know, the bird song and so on. Appreciating everything as it is, beyond good and bad. And yet still we can discriminate in life between virtue and vice, good and bad helpful and harmful, and so forth. So in the meditation itself, we had a little tune-up, again, with the shocking shouting and the self-inquiry, looking into who or what is experiencing one's own experience, turning towards the source of all this projections and radiance, as we say, rather than looking outward for answers or at things, looking at the looker, Perceiving the perceiver, seeing through the seer. You know, it's hard to turn around fast enough to catch it. But you don't have to turn around because it's right in front of you. And you can just look in the mirror of emptiness and you'll see it. And see through your limited self. Seeing through yourself is seeing Buddha, being Buddha. There's no Buddha outside. That's why it says in the Zen teachings, if you meet Buddha on the road, kill him. Of course, Zen Buddhism is a Buddhist tradition. There's prohibition against killing. But this is the one case 
where if, if you think Buddha is outside, you should kill that kind of Buddha. That's the point. If you think Buddha is inside, that's a, probably equally illusory. So any questions or sharing, please? Hi, Lana. Hi, Nina. So you were talking about yesterday the middle way, which, of course, but there are many lanes on the middle way. And I just wondered if you could say something about, you know, in all those lanes there's a yellow line and you have to have some trust. And sometimes that's where I get hung up with the trust. That's my where I get kind of hooked. And if I sit, you know, I had a powerful experience in Texas where I sat all night in that temple and I had like a, you know, I sat and it was okay, you know, it came, it was a big dark place and then I, the next day it just sort of evaporated and I stayed with it, but just... just What's the, the, it came, you mean fear or mistrust, what, you sat with what all night I guess, and, and evaporated? I guess it was feeling totally not myself. It was mm -hmm. a feeling of the total antithesis of being myself. Mm -hmm. And then as the dawn you know, rose, I sat in and out of meditation, and um, I felt more like myself than ever before. So it was very powerful, but I'm not always in that circumstance to when that arises for me right. in, in, in ways. And I just wonder if you could say something about trust. Trust seems to go with uh, fear and doubt. So I'm trying to tune into what your issue really is, you know, like mistrusting your Buddha nature, that you can just be that, as you said, or mistrusting people. More my or, Buddha or nature, more that your own resting in as it is, yeah. right. the comfortableness of yeah. being who... Right. When I strip away, I get to that essential self. So since you've experienced that, I should think, but you tell me, doesn't that, doesn't that bring it out of the realm of a mere belief into the realm of conviction? So you don't really have to trust something or someone you don't know, and you can more rely, take refuge in, sit with, sit in, be as what you do know, you know, know into it. That's why I keep coming. Not just trust, practice. but really uh, rely on your own conviction as a refuge, not just a belief or something you hear or read, you know, we're all Buddhas by nature, or everything's perfect as it is, or something. I mean, that's all, you know, sounds good, but that's just like to challenge our habitual perception that things are not right and it should, every, it should be different and it shouldn't be different and it should be different and that kind of thing. Of course, sometimes it is true, it, it should be different and we should do something about it, like the example of the child running in the street. Or if you're sick, you should take some action, I guess, to get healthy. Not just say it's perfect, you know, like the Christian scientists don't like to interfere with God's will, so they don't get medical treatment or let their children get medical treatment. That becomes a problem sometimes. That's not what we're advocating. That seems like an extreme to us. So I think you have a certain amount of trust and conviction already. I wouldn't overlook that, and I'd rely on that. 
and not try to have the experience that you had again at the advanced retreat at our retreat center in Texas, but try to follow the same instruction or path or letting go, what you call stripping away of all the excess. So your um, what naked nature is just all that's left or shines forth. So first you have to experience that or glimpse that or recognize that, and then you start to mature it or check it out and try to ascertain it with more and more certainty that there's nothing else you know, better to add on or to get. Maybe there is. And yeah, maybe there is. If there is, please find it and let me know. See what I'm saying? That's the second step in the three parts of the Dzogchen path. We haven't talked about this yet. The Dzogchen view, meditation, and action. The view is really this recognition or glimpse or introduction to your true nature. That's the ground. Not just joining the Dzogchen membership program or coming to a Dzogchen center, but recognizing that that's the beginning, like initiation into the true path. You've actually seen dawn rise and you know where east is, even though maybe it's dark again. So then the, the second part of the Dzogchen path is maturing that or checking it out in every way and ascertaining it with greater and greater certainty. So check it out and, and see and try to rest in that and see what's keeping you from trusting. What, you know, maybe it's voices from the past or it's your, you know, I don't know, inner tyrant, inner lawyer, parental voice, school teacher voice, I don't know your history, elder sibling voice, never good enough voice, you know, many things. Women can only do this and not that kind of voice. Different kinds of conditionings. Thank you. So the view is the ground, the meditation of non-meditation is the path. The view is the recognition, introduction, glimpse, whatever experience. Meditation is the path, getting used to it, getting used to what you glimpse, checking it out. And third is the more the result, ground path and fruit result, the result of stabilizing that. So you don't bounce in and out of it, or you're not subject to the mere vagaries of experience, the changing weather conditions outside or inner weather, emotional weather, are also external to our uncorruptible inner light or Buddhaness, Buddha nature. So that's called the ground path and fruit. If you read Tibetan Buddhist books, the Mahamudra and Dzogchen, just like the Buddhist path has certain steps on it, the Theravadan sutras talk about the four steps to enlightenment of Sri Mentara, once returner, non-returner, an arhat or liberated saint. The Mahayana scriptures talk about the ten stages or bhumis of the bodhisattva, getting to full enlightened Buddhahood, full enlightened Buddhahood, anatara samyak sambodhi, full enlightened irreversible cosmic Buddhahood, the eleventh bhumi or eleventh stage. This is the path of Dzogchen, these three steps. So again, it's not just doing nothing or being here now. There's actually some maturation to take place. From the beginning, from the first step, the wine is in the bottle. It doesn't get better by stirring and shaking it, but it may mature over the years. That's the second step, getting used to it. it may, the wine may mature, get better over the years until it's stable. Then 
it, there's nothing, no getting better, you know. It's like certain wine doesn't get better after 10 or 20 years. You're supposed to drink it. Questions? Yes, young man. Hi. Um, this is not exactly on this subject particularly, but Go ahead. Um, regarding to kind of like acceptance um, and not having, like not uh, relying on will so much, um, uh, with my condition uh, in a chair, um, there's a lot of like balance between um, sort of being okay with things as they are and also trying to actively improve the situation, you know, and which I guess would probably not be a very Dzogchen thing, maybe, to sort of fight against it, you know, in more of a physical realm, you know, by doing a lot of physical therapy or just trying to combat the degradation, you know. Um, so I was wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, the middle way, not doing nothing and not overdoing. And that's something for your intelligence and discriminating discernment to, you know, experiment with what's too, like so many other things, like what's too much and what's too little. That's why I keep saying now we're just doing Dzogchen. We're not trying to do attitude transformation or loving kindness and compassion or good deeds or other things that are part of the spiritual path, the Bodhisattva way, our way, my way, a good way, I think, in the world. But here we're just trying to learn a skill that we haven't learned, that every religion and every value humanistic system is not teaching necessarily. They're all teaching good deeds and service and unselfishness and compassion and kindness. It's very hard to find something that's so radical on the acceptance and the letting be and the letting go and letting be and the intense incandescent awareness part, the wisdom part, not just the compassion part. Can That's I, important. So I don't know exactly what your condition is, but I see you're in a chair. So you describe physical therapy and other things, you know, and you're a young guy. You should obviously, I mean, I think, I don't know, it's not my specialty. You should ask a doctor if you know any. I know your father's a doctor, but I was just joshing you guys. <laughs> if you can find a good doctor, I mean, you should ask, <laughs> ask her, you know, what, what you can do. And what part you can do and what part, you know, is up to God to do. Or if you let go of doing. Yeah. And, if, and doctors have their, you know, hopefully helping ways. And there may be other people you could ask a very similar question to who might have equally and complementary helping ways, not just the doctor's helping way. You know, what else can you do besides the physical and the rehab and the fighting against it and effort? You know, maybe fighting and maybe uh, effort doesn't have to be so fighting, but it can still be um, dedicated and commitment, committed and, you know, constant and persistent and uh, powerful, effective. So they, they both can kind of simultaneously exist? Yes, that's the idea. Okay. As we were talking yesterday about swooping from above with the big view that everything's fine as it is while climbing up from below through pra relative kind of conventional practices, trying to become better people, be healthy, create a better world in, in this level where we all live. Thanks.
So uh, sometimes I like to think of Reinhold Niebuhr's great serenity prayer that the 12-steppers use a lot. You know what I'm talking about? Who can recite it? I can't. May I? Please speak up with the microphone. This is a good thing to remember. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So that's not a 12-step program prayer. That's from the great Protestant theologian and social activist Reinhold Niebuhr, who lived in the last century. And he was a wonderful teacher and spiritual teacher. And there's about another six or eight lines to that prayer that's worth looking up that all goes together with what we're talking about. But just that alone, which you can Google up, which you can find, which I have on a little plastic card in my wallet, you might want to do the same, is very good to remember. With or without the word like God, may I, or whatever, bless me to, you know. What is it? Have the... Grant the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So that's the middle way. And the wisdom to know the difference, even the wisdom is very important. Where are we learning about wisdom today in higher education? It's very, unfortunately, very rare. Although still everybody's aware of it and values it and talks about it. So that's our theme obviously. And Buddhism is not so much a faith-based path, but a way of awakening. It's a little different. It's a wisdom kind of, it's an awareness-based path. We don't ask you to believe in rebirth. It's not so much about belief as about finding out for yourself if it works for you, etc. So I hope that kind of little prayer and some other things can help you remember and what we're talking about here so you don't become more passive or uh, resigned to your fate. Being one with karma is different than being resigned to my fate. Uh, I'm just a woman. I could never be president. Uh, No, one with karma is I'm a woman. No problem. That's, That's my situation. Now what? Fuck everyone. I'm going to be president. (laughs) Or better, I'm going to be Oprah. (laughs) Oprah doesn't have just four years (laughs) to do all the good she does. So I hope that's helpful, young man. It's great to see you here. What's your name? Andy. Where do you live, Andy? Uh, In uh, Northern California. Yeah. I actually met you at Spirit Rock in February, I think. At that day long? Yeah. Good enough, nice to see you. We also yeah, have some retreats and things in California. Yeah. Questions? Mahatma Gandhi, you know, on the subject of like fighting against our fate, this is for everybody, not just Andy in a wheelchair. Fighting against our fate, you know, which are you know, fighting, struggling and things. Mahatma Gandhi said, who's really one of my superheroes, Mahatma Gandhi said, um, when he feels this kind of thing, like he's dissatisfied with his lot, with his lot, or he's not happy with what God has sent, or he, you know, of course he did so much. He didn't just sit there and accept. He changed the world, as you know. But he also, when he needed to um, find some inner balance, inner peace, 
and not be so reactive. He said, when I think of my own troubles, or when you think of your troubles, when I think of my own troubles, I, rem- I try to remember. This is like my talisman. It's my touchstone. I try to remember the face of the poorest street person I've ever seen in the world. And that gives him some perspective on his troubles. And he lived in India when the British owned it. So you can imagine what some of those people looked like that he was remembering, seeing. He also lived in South Africa under apartheid in the 1920s and 30s, which he fought and was arrested, probably beaten for, I can't remember. I think he was imprisoned for anyway in South Africa. So he saw plenty of downtrodden people not just marginalized, but like some of the poorest, most unfortunate, suffering people in the world. So he remembered that, gave him a perspective on, you know, our troubles, like, oh, the air conditioning is out here at Garrison. I have to leave. (laughs) Questions? Um, Yes, hi. Hello. Um, My name is Venus, and um, hopefully I'm not... uh, I don't want to keep going over and over the same thing. No, go ahead, ask you a question. It pulls on both um, what this lady and this um, young man were talking about. And uh, so I'm trying not to get emotional. I'm a very emotional person. But um, it's just... Take a breath. No hurry. Knowing, how do you know that you're actually on the middle path? I don't know if that sounds like a really stupid question. That's a good question. It's like, how do you know that you... Like, one of my problems in my... Two, well, one of many problems, but two of the many problems that I have. <laughs> Poor thing. Is, is, is self-doubt, self-doubt, which pulls uh-huh. on the trusting. Yes. And the pushing too hard. Uh-huh. And I don't know, and I, what brought me to meditation and uh, was to try and find that middle way uh-huh. to know that I am not pushing too hard. Right. And I am accepting and... Right. I don't know if that makes any sense. And you're knowing when to do when to do it. Yes, like to well, that's a that lifelong. Try. That's a lifelong koan um, or conundrum. You can't chew tell on. me the answer. Yes, <laughs> just so you can just I tell can. me. Do this. I can. I can. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I can. But will I? <laughs> <laughs> and will it? Ha- more importantly, will it help? It might not help now, but it will help me at some point. I know definitely. That's why I'm here. You know, right. I really. Yes, you, you, the only um, person, the only authority you can really rely on. I mean, you can ask anyone. You can ask the wooden desk that Robert's sitting at. You can ask Robert. You can ask the Buddhist statue. You can ask the Dalai Lama. You can ask Jesus. You can ask philosophers. You know, you can ask the, the smartest person. You know, but the only person you can really ask and find out from is yourself. Whatever yourself means, your conscious conscience your inner wisdom, your spiritual intelligence. Only you know, like, what's too much and what too little. So according to your story, you said you pushed too hard. So I guess you don't feel very very balanced. So that's a message from you to you. Of course, if you're totally fooling yourself, maybe you don't push too hard. Maybe that's just what your, I don't know, your mate tells you. What somebody told you. But we'll take you to face value that you push too hard, which is a common thing many people have. Anybody else have that? 
Anybody else heard of the middle way? Anybody ha- still have that? <laughs> so, too much and too little, too hard and not enough. Um, and all of these dichotomies or polarities is part of life. Only you can really decide for you. But not just you, you know, the child, you, the, you know, how about you, the adult, the wise, the inner Buddha, the inner guru, you, like your own inner truth is the one you have to ask. Just like you're the one that has to know whether you're in love or not. Who can you ask whether you're in love? And everybody is here as an adult, more or less, so we've all gone through the stages. So when you're young, you know, you, you ask your friends, you ask your sister, you ask your brother, you ask your mother, you ask your therapist, I don't know, you ask, you ask Jeeves on the computer, I don't know, whoever, you know, you ask. You pray, you ask God, you ask Jesus. People have different go-tos. But finally, who is it that has to decide whether you are in love? Except you right? You get help from them as you go through the stages of from infatuation and puppy love to, you know, to lust and whatever love. And then you get to adult mature love and then you fall in love. And then, you know, maybe, you know, you're in love or the next time, you know, you're in love. So it's kind of like that. It's not that simple. But so now I told you the one that you can ask and you have to ask. Of course, there are others you could ask, like you asked me. That's not the worst idea in the world. It's not the ultimate idea. But you know, you can ask people that might be helpful or interested in helping you, not interested in exploiting you. You could ask wise people. So if we are seekers, if we're true seekers, we have to be very candid and honest with ourselves and learn how and what we can trust in ourselves. What's the inner guru? What's the inner truth that we can rely on, that we can ask? Just like you know whether you belong here or not. And I don't mean this in some big, you know, existential, I mean like, if you decide to leave, you know, you can leave. You're deciding to stay. You know, who, who's, who are you relying on to make that decision? There's a part of you that knows and, and already is your inner guru, let's say, to make it very um, caricature, your inner guru that you rely on, your inner truth, your sense of reality. As an adult that you trust enough to you know, go forward. You're not just sitting there like a lump waiting for your mother to tell you it's a school day, you have to get dressed now, and this is what you put on. That's the child stage. Now you're an adult woman, so you make your own decisions, good, bad, and sort of in between. So we're in a practice here that is working consciously on awareness, consciousness, mindfulness, discernment, discrimination, clarity, objectivity, all of these things so we can get wiser. So we can ask that inner what wisdom to function, that inner truth, that inner guru, our conscience, whatever it is, our spiritual intelligence. And not just about spiritual things, our inner truth about everything, anything. And then maybe others can, you know, draw sustenance or come drink water at that source too one day. So that's who to ask. And meanwhile, there are many people that say, especially in the spiritual world, you should join something, have a teacher, ask the good book. You know, these are 
better answers than asking that piece of wood, probably. But you have to decide, like, which ones can work for you. People go to therapy, people ask their elders, even people who are not older than them, but who seem wise or mature in that area, right? So I hope that you are doing those things. Because it's also easy to fool ourselves. So as we're growing on this path of wisdom, it's good to ask for help and ask others and seek elder guidance. So I hope that's helpful. And what was the other thing you asked about? There was that and the self-doubt, was that it? Uh, self-doubt and... Um, yes. Well, self-doubt, you know, I mean, if I ask, most people here will put up their hands again, so we don't have to do that, but... We're looking into things like that here, like self, who, who are you really and what self do you doubt? Are you doubting your, you know, you feel like the little girl doubts herself or the woman, I don't know, I just, you know, I can hardly see that far, I'm so old. You know, the, the, the married woman, you doubt your, your motherness, you, you think you're still a child, how can you be a mother and a wife, or I don't know, maybe you're a, I, maybe you're a professional, but you doubt, you, you know, you wonder how you snuck in there, are you really yeah. valid? It, it's doubting, I can actually answer that, it's doubting the right decision, but as I say it, it sounds stupid, sorry, but it's like, no, it doesn't sound stupid. it's doubting making the right decision. And I don't know if there is a right decision or, or wrong yeah, decision, but just right. doubting. Yeah, that's the only way we can describe it. Yeah. Doubting making the right decision. So you decision. get paralyzed about self-doubt yeah. and like, like when you go out of the house, you, can't, you have to go back and check if you turned everything off many times? I'm a teacher. I doubt the fact that um, it took me, it was a hard struggle to become a teacher um, for various different reasons. And then I started teaching and it was hell. I'm sorry, but it was hell for the first like. Teaching three. is hell. I, mean, <laughs> I know, and then confirm I, it. And then I was like, I'm like, what was I thinking? This was the wrong decision. Like I'm so stupid. And then the self doubt came in, you know, like because and it sounds. I'm really. I'm showing my really stupid side, but like I thought it would be easier. I thought you know this is what I'm supposed to do, and it's going to be great. And it was horrible. And I was like, oh my gosh, you see, Venus, you did it again. You made the wrong decision. You know, like, I'm okay, really, I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, that, that inner tyrant, that harsh self-talk is, is an issue that one could look at. You know. Like, is that really your voice or is that, you know, some other voice like your strict parent or coach or somebody? And do you have to listen to them or is that just, you know, we have many voices in our head, mostly from the past. Maybe we can be more like the kindergarten teacher that just hears the rowdy voices but doesn't, isn't so um, bossed or driven by them. And if there's some good information in there, we can pick it up. But most of it's just a cacophony from the past. You know, you, oh, you always do this. There, you did it again. Then so you start flagellating yourself. So this becoming more self-aware is supposed to be helpful in all these areas. But also people go to therapy for that. That's a big subject in therapy. And there are other you know, ways of working, looking into the self and its different parts. So stick with that and try to learn to trust your own judgment and intuition, and also refine your judgment and discernment and wisdom 
so it becomes better and more trustworthy. And try to be gentle with yourself, Venus. You're a beautiful person. You, you know, just self-beating up is not fun to watch. Well, it's kind of fun, but it's painful. <laughs> <laughs> Last question. <laughs> yes. Nicole. Uh, so when I'm not self-doubting, which takes up quite a bit of my time. You have some self-doubt? Um, <laughs> the other part of what I'm doing is thinking about suffering. Um, and so I'm wondering if you think of the poorest person that Gandhi saw in India, um, and if you attribute, if you say that perhaps that person was a victim of human rights, for example, um, meaning that perhaps right. she was born as an untouchable, but perhaps mm -hmm. also there's yeah. layers, of, layers of malice, of... Um, Systemic violence, not just, right, yep, now somebody right. beating her. Action of others onto her. And so she's a mother, and she's got five kids, and she can't feed them, and there's sexual violence, etc. Yeah. The suffering that she experiences, how do, you, versus the, the suffering that I experience, um, how do you equate those? I mean, I think that that generally suffering is relative, mm -hmm. but when you take that kind of suffering versus suffering that's sort of in our heads, like mental suffering or. Right, not going, the worried well. Not going to prom with the person you wanted to go yeah, to prom with, right, which caused yeah. me great suffering in high school. It did? Right? But is it did? really... No, literally, it did, right? Oh, yeah, no, it did. Yeah. Yeah? So, so in one level, you could say, like, your great suffering, or I don't know, let's make it more funny. White man's suffering <laughs> is equal to, you know, dark man, woman's third world suffering, because it's great suffering in your mind, in your world, in whatever you're used to. Just like, I guess you're, I know you never told me you're an orphan, so you have parents. I don't know if they're alive, but you have parents, you're not an orphan. So your love for your parents is generally said like somebody else's love for their parents, right? That's just how it is, regardless of whether their parents were around or not, or yours around. So suffering is similar, just like your pleasure and their pleasure. But in another sense, of course, there are, you know, scales of suffering. Like there's, there's a difference between first and second and third degree murder. You're a lawyer. And there's a difference between genocide and, you know, great loss of life in war and great loss of life in some epidemic or, 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 um, I don't know, tsunami. But great suffering is great suffering because it's perceived that way. So what are you really after about the system, how to deal with the systemic part? You know, like a, a child, a, a young teenager crying because she doesn't get the right date for the prom or because, I don't know, she, you know, her boyfriend breaks up with her or something. And by boyfriend, I mean like 12-year-old boyfriend or 10-year-old boyfriend is a great suffering for a teenager because they're a vulnerable little sprout. It's a total suffering. It's an all-night cry. Well, longer. So what about a parent that loses their child? That's a great suffering. It's very difficult to say that that's a bigger suffering than the, the child suffering. And the same about happiness. The great happiness, adult happiness, and the great, you know, you see when the child gets the happiness, how happy it makes everybody around. It's the great happiness. You can't say that's more or less or 
It's a tough, because the isness of, this is like the great perfection teaching. It is what it is, and that's the truth. That's the total, that's the whole thing right there. Not qualitatively different, quantitatively different. But what are you really asking? And I know you work in Haiti and human rights and all. So I'm thinking we think of the poorest person and it gives perspective on maybe my suffering is bearable and I could pay more attention to somebody else's rather than my own right now. But you're thinking maybe about changing the system that oppresses that person, right? Well, that's not what we're doing in this practice, obviously, but in general life, of course, Buddhist, Bodhisattva practice, we are and could be. So the wisdom and discrimination comes in handy when you try to do things in a practical, outer, material, visible way. Like change the caste system or the not educating women system or the, you know, the sexual slavery market in those countries or whatever you're working on in Haiti with the disaster relief. The more neurotic you are, the you know, the more neurotic your work is, the wiser you are, the wiser your work, your life, your life outflow is. That's the law. Hard to argue with. That's, the, that's what we're trying to do here. Trusting that that, you know, rising sun of wisdom naturally has rays of compassionate action, loving, unselfish, givingness, and less compulsive and more responding to real needs. I think externally, um, in terms of decisions I make with work and strategies and stuff, I think that I do a decent job of the middle way, making decisions with the middle way. Um, but on a personal level, when, sort of what I think about as I go to sleep or sitting on an airplane by myself, I think of how difficult, how, how I don't want to feel separate but how difficult it is to feel really um, at one with people, with the mother, with, with five children. Who's, yeah, it and is difficult. You can, and I know that's part of the compassion. It is difficult. But it, when there's a system that reinforces my privilege so greatly, and when my suffering mm. just seems all like one big prom date, um, no. you know, disappointment. I, I wouldn't, that's more like a self-doubt, really. That's putting yourself down. Your suffering is just one big prom date disappointment, but uh, somebody else's suffering is more real. That's the other side. That's inverse egotism. That's the other side of thinking that my, I don't know, I'm, I'm better than they are. Here you're saying I'm worse than they are, or I'm less, my suffering is less real because it's, you know, first world, high class suffering. I mean, people commit suicide in all strata of society. So the suiciding person, do you think they're suicide because they didn't get the right prom date or because they lost their $100 million in stocks is less suffering than the suffering of somebody who lost their only cow in India? Because it's just a paper, you know, nothing. I mean, they're committing suicide because of it. It's a big suffering. Do you think that wise yogis in India and all the spiritual leaders that you've had in Tibet, not all of them, but do you think that those who have had such great suffering, we know Tibetans have, as a people, suffered so much, would they say that suffering is equal? 
I guess that's the issue. I feel awkward saying all suffering is equal. Well, I get that's it. why I said, in one point of view, in general, people and their experience is sort of equal. In another sense, we have to distinguish between those different... It's a spectrum. Remember what I said about genocide and mass death from tsunamis? It's a little different as to what actions, what moral morality can be ascribed. Some people, who I'm not very fond of, I won't mention their names, they, I don't mean here, I mean pe famous people, ascribe the suffering of genocide and the suffering of tsunamis to the same cause, to those people's unchristian sins or those people's homosexual sins. So you see what I'm saying? So we, with wisdom, we might discriminate in a different way, not say it's all the same. God visited suffering on them because they're, whatever, not... Christian or they're homosexual, they're not our way of living. Or... So we're trying to have a more nuanced and objective approach and look into ourselves and see what suffering is and not put ourselves up above anyone or below anyone either. I would like you to think about this. This is a good one. And um, talk to somebody about it more. Talk it out a little. I don't know. Do you have a mentor at this stage in your life or somebody? That would be good, I think. Thank you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.